for us, tender and caring and loving, uh, not only as a friend, but even more importantly as, as a father. And we'll kind of see a little taste of that today in today's study. As you turn with me to Ephesians chapter chapter 6, and we continue in our study of Ephesians, we continue in our sub-study here of, of submission and submissiveness and subjection and understanding and grasping what that means, uh, whether we're in a position of authority or a position of, of serving, for a position of servant leading, uh, there always seems to be some level of of submission, uh, no matter who you are. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 says, obey, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Well, today we're going to look at fatherhood and how important and vital and some of the aspects of, of fatherhood. I did a little kind of quick search of looking at, well, what are, what are the negative ramifications of, of fatherless families? Uh, we kind of hear a little bit here and there about that, but when you actually look and, and read the studies and all the statistics, it's, it's pretty horrific. Um, and the percentages are very, very high. It's, it's not like 50-50 chance, you know, things will go bad. It's, it's much higher than that. We look at things that shouldn't even exist in a country like America where, I mean, we have it so good. I mean, what is there to complain about when you're, a, you know, a 15-year-old child in America? And yet we have a, a 63% of youth suicide without fathers in their homes. I mean, that, that, that's a huge jump. We see 90% of, of what they would categorize homeless, but really it's their runaways. So, so it's by choice that kids will run away, and that's what makes them homeless. 90% of them um, from, home, from fatherless homes. There's no one there to, to guide them, to instruct them, to, to lead them. Things like uh, just bad social behaviors, um, kids that you know are, are just delinquents. Eighty-eight percent of them come from fatherless homes. Again, there's no father there to uh, instruct and discipline them, keep them accountable. High school dropouts. Seventy-one percent of high school dropouts uh, come from fatherless homes. Uh, chemical abuse. Seventy-eight percent. 88% of youths that end up in jail or prison, 88% come from fatherless homes. That's one of the big reasons why a lot of uh, teens join gangs. The gang is a pseudo family. It's a, it's a, it's a perversion of family, but nonetheless, it's, it's there as a replacement. And then 71% of pre pregnant teens come from fatherless homes. Again, young ladies just seeking and trying to find somebody, uh, a male figure, to love them any, any way they can. Uh, fathers matter. Fathers matter. Uh, and anybody can make a child. Uh, any fool can do that. Uh, but it takes 
a real man to actually be a father. Um, we're reminded, and we've been reminded the last couple of weeks, that, that we take a, a biblical high ground, right? A biblical high ground. That means we, we look at the, the Bible standard. Yes, we know that there are some um, one-offs. There are some you know, exceptions. Yes, there's widows that, you know, had no intention of being a single mom, but, you know, now they are. And, and that's not we're talk, what we're talking about. We, we know and understand that there are some, some of those occasions. But as we mentioned last week, the, the Bible takes us to the highest standard, not the lowest common denominator. The Bible makes biblical assumptions. Biblical assumptions. Um, the first Standard, the first assumption right off the bat is this is what marriage is. It's between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, until death do you part. That, that's the biblical high standard. That's the assumption. Um, that's the goal. That's the model. The biblical assumption, as we we're studying in Ephesians 5, and how a husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church and sacrificially gave himself up for the church. And the explanation here, the description is, you understand this. Love your wives as your own body, right? It's just like common self, self, self-evident. And so in that, in that umbrella, of course, there wouldn't be any, you know, verbal abuse or physical abuse. You know, that, that's the, the Bible, again, makes the assumption that, that that's, that's not going to be the situation. Divorce is not going to be uh, the, the standard. God hates divorce, and he, he spells that out. And so when we're studying the Word of God, when we're studying the Bible, it's coming at us with these, these high expectations. There, there's, there's no discussion of, well, if we don't make it you know, in the marriage, or, well, you know, in the prenup. No, none of that's on the table. This is going to be for life. Um, and we could play that game all day long. You know, the, the what if game, right? Well, what about this? What if that? Well, and then we just end up going around in circles all day long because we could always come up with, with some crazy reason why, you know, your husband was lost at sea. And so, you know, now you're alone to raise the kid. I mean, there's always, there's always something, there's always some what if. So, so, so we have to put ourselves once again looking at the, the standard that the Bible gives us, that it clearly gives us, and, and set aside at the moment with the, uh, all the, the what ifs. But we do understand that there's some unique situations. Uh, so Ephesians chapter 6, the, the first nine uh, verses here, we're, we've talked about these are four practical examples of how subjection to authority works like within a home. We see it with the children. We see it with the fathers. We're going to see it with, with slaves. And then we're going to see it with the masters. So last week it was the children's subjection. Uh, today we're looking at the father's subjection. And then next week hopefully we can tackle the, the slave and the master's subjection. Again, just a little quick background for those of you who maybe weren't here last week or knew. Uh, last week we, we studied the, the responsibility of children to obey their parents in the Lord. When they're obeying their parents, they're really obeying the Lord. This is what's right. This is the right thing to do to obey your parents. No qualifications. 
obey. Obey your parents as we teach the kids. Obey first time and quickly. Happy to help, right? Uh, they're to honor and obey. So there's an honor aspect to this, to honor their father and their mother. Not just obey, but to honor. And we talked about how that transcends from, from childhood, even as you're an adult. You, you always honor your parents, even though now you may be you know, a man or you know, a husband or a wife and you know, 45 years old and you're in your own house and you have your own kids. Uh, maybe it's not an obeying issue with your parents, but it is an honoring issue. Uh, that still never, ever ends. Um, and there's a reward for this. There's a reward. There's a, a promise. Because you know what? Well, maybe again, the what if, maybe your uh, mom or dad weren't the perfect scenario, but you still honored and obeyed. You, you, you still uh, were an obedient child. The Lord will bless that. The Lord will bless that. There are benefits and blessings. Well, today we see uh, the father's responsibility in this relationship. And, and I would even say that uh, the father helps perpetuate the child in obedience. And we'll kind of see how, how that plays. Because the father is the one who, who sets that tone for, for the whole household. Uh, he sets, as we would say nowadays, he sets like the culture, right? Uh, of, or the brand of your home. And, and that culture and that brand should be a biblical brand. It should be a Christian culture. Um, and so we'll see how that looks. So the second example of this mutual respect that we see in the, in the household is uh, a father's subjection in the home. And the first uh, element we want to see is the ultimate father, the ultimate father. Verse 4 says, and fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. So we want to understand, well, what is a father? We, we want to understand what are some biblical examples of fathers. And there's no greater example um, than the ultimate father, our father who art in heaven, our heavenly father. Th this is our starting point then when we think about, well, what is fatherhood? Uh, God is the, the creator of, of the universe. He, he not only is the creator and the absolute moral being, he's the absolute moral law creator. He creates the absolutes. There are absolutes. There's absolute right and absolute wrong set by the absolute moral law being the absolute moral law giver, right? But he's not just a, a rule maker. He's not just, you know, a, a lawmaker. This is an intimate relationship that God has with people. It's an amazing thing to consider. It starts off in the beginning. In the beginning, God and God creates the heavens and the earth and God creates man and, and woman and God is dwelling in the garden with mankind. It's always been God's desire to be intimate with people, to dwell with people. When Israel becomes a nation, they're in the desert, and there's about 2 million of them, and the 12 tribes are divided, and, and the, the tent of the tabernacle is in the center of the nation of Israel, and tabernacle means to dwell. God is dwelling and hovering right in the middle of the Israelites as their father, not just a, a law-giving God. 
Psalm 68.5 speaks to this. It says, he is a father to the fatherless. He's the protector of widows. I mean, when we think of, of that kind of person, that kind of man, well, that's who our God is. He's a, he's a father to the fatherless, to the orphan. He's a, a, a protector of the widows. God established this. Deuteronomy 14 is the, the first time we see how God directly calls himself to Israel, their heavenly father. Their heavenly, not just a, a, a God that's out there, but, but their father. Um, John 3.16, you know, we, sometimes we, we see things so much that it, it just it, it loses its, its punch, right? And so, you know, a while ago, I, I guess 30 years ago, you know, some guy showed up at a football game and had, a, you know, the big sign, you know, John 3.16. And so everybody, you know, oh, well, what's John 3.16? And everybody went out and memorized it and knew it. And for many, many years, I mean, everybody, you know, if anybody knew one verse in the Bible, they knew John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whoever believes in him will not die, but have eternal life. What a, what a, what a verse. There's so much there, right? Whoever believes in him by faith, you can be saved. Um, but that there's a, a God who's our father and our father, God, gives his only begotten son on our behalf to die on the cross to pay for it. I mean, talk about a, a loaded verse. But we see here again this, that God so loved the world as a father. He, he gives his son to us, his, his children. But what, what sacrificial love? This is the kind of, of, of pattern that we see in God. Yes, he's a God of standards, of laws. Yes, there's consequence to disobedience. Yes, there's a penalty to pay for unrepentant sin. Yes. But, but God's desire is that you would repent and bow the knee before the throne of God, and then he will welcome you in with loving, kind, forgiving arms. Jesus himself refers to God as Father in the New Testament over 70 times. So, so it's not just like a one-off kind of a verse, right? This, this is a, a, a common thing. And, and, and Jesus goes on to uh, describe God as our Father another 25 times. That's just Jesus. That's not counting uh, the epistles and, and other books in the Bible. We're considered family. We're, 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 we're joint heirs. Um, the, the language of that is, is really remarkable. In, in, in Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 12, So then, brethren, so we're, we're, we're all brethren, right? We're all brothers and sisters. Well, who's our daddy? Well, God's our father. So brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. You, you die because we break the law. We break, we, we commit sin. But if the spirit you are putting to death, the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are being led by the spirit of God. These are sons of God. For you have not 
received a spirit of slavery, slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. There's no more intimate term that the, the Greeks could use in that relationship between children and parent than this phrase, Abba, Father. It, it's, it's like that idea of daddy, right? Daddy. Um, it's not just the title. It, it's the intimacy. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now are we children of God, verse 17, and if children heirs also, heirs to God, fellow heirs with Christ, indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What a picture. What a picture of, of, of God's relationship between uh, us and him. What, a, what an understanding then for us to get our arms wrapped around like, what's the standard of fatherhood, right? So a few weeks ago, we were looking at, well, what's the standard for a husband in loving his wife? Well, the standard is Jesus Christ. The, the, the standard is, is how Christ loved the church. And so from that point forward, we're, we're to look at our relationship. We're to look at our, our headship, our, our position as heads of the household, as the servant leader that Christ was, the sacrificial leader that Christ was, with that goal of nourishing and cherishing and presenting back to God in, in all glory, our wives. Well, as fathers, again, we, we need to understand, okay, if we're to, to really get our, our minds wrapped around fatherhood, we need to understand who God the Father is. The second aspect we see is, well, father, the title father, the, the role of father is, is the head. He's the, the, the head of the family. Um, we've already talked about, uh, you know, wives and being subject to their own husbands as unto the Lord. Now we see that the fathers are, are heads of the family. There, there's a, a great book that I, I read and, and it's a, leadership book, a leadership training book. And I, I think I've mentioned it before. It's called It's My Ship. It was uh, written by uh, Captain Abershoff, who, who had a, you know, a military vessel. Now, when I read the book, I, you know, I wasn't all that um, familiar with, with how ships worked. I mean, you just kind of don't think about it when you've never been on a military ship. Maybe you see some movies and you know, even on a movie, if you, you know, you see this movie and they, you know, land a jet, you know, on, on top of a deck and, you know, maybe you see 30 guys on the deck, you know, and the guy that's doing this and, you know, hopefully when the plane's landing, right, somebody doesn't say, hey, you know, where's the sandwich, you know, and it's like over there and then the plane goes that way. You know. So that guy's pretty important, right? There's no small roles. But there's like 30 guys that you would see. Well, normally on a ship like that, there could be like 4,000 guys on a battleship. 4,000. I mean, th think about that number. That, that's a lot of people. And so in this book, It's My Ship, the captain of the ship goes on to describe as, as captain, well, how he serves the ship and, and how the ship functions. And there's so many different departments, so many different roles. Uh, one of the interesting things when, you, when you're thinking about like a battleship is, well, every person on that ship has two functions. One, 
as a military person on a battleship. And then secondarily, well, they also have different roles on that ship. Like, well, we're not in the middle of a war right now, so you know, you gotta mop the deck. You know, so you've, you've got two different roles. Well, managing that, as you could you know, imagine, would be pretty difficult, and there's a whole chain of command. And so the captain who's in charge, uh, you know, he's not just sitting in a room just barking out and commanding, right? He, he, he's got to be a good leader. If he's a good leader, then his men will follow him into battle. One of the interesting stories that he mentioned was, well, a captain of a ship isn't like steering and driving the ship 24-7 because, again, that's the other thing. The ship is moving 24-7. So, you know, at some point the captain's got to sleep and then the first officer takes command. We talk about responsibility as being the head. And just because you're the head, that doesn't mean like you're some autocratic king that can do whatever he wants. And that picture was shown very clearly when, when the first officer of a ship, if he grounds that ship, so the captain's, you know, been up for four days straight, decides he needs a 15 minute nap. And in that 15 minutes, if his first officer runs the ship you know, on land, guess who gets fired? The captain. The captain is 100% responsible. No ifs, ands, or buts. That's the kind of responsibility that headship is. That's the kind of responsibility that when we understand fatherhood, again, it's like, okay, so as headship, my responsibility, I have responsibility. I dole out with the different tasks, the different gifts. We all have spiritual gifts. We, we value our wives. Our wives are helpers, our helpmates. And so as fathers, we are in charge. We are in control to, to navigate this house, right? This household, this this culture, the morale, and we, we all have it. We don't, we don't say it like that, but everybody's house, you know, you, we've all got families and friends and stuff. And it's like, all right, we're going to so-and-so's house tonight. It's like, oh boy, here we go. It's going to be crazy over there. You know, the kids run around, jumping up on everything, going crazy. That's their culture. We're, we're going over here. Ooh, do, do, I, do I have to wear a coat and tie? I mean, you know, they're pretty... Like, you know, you can put your finger up above the ledge. There's no dust anywhere. It's like prim and proper. And, you know, so that, that's their culture. That's their, you know, this other house, you know, it's yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. This house, it's back sass. It's fighting. We all have a culture, whether we like it or not. If you're not sure, ask your friends and maybe they can write it down and slip it to you in an envelope because they don't want to tell you in person. But as a father, you're in control of that. That's part of your role, your responsibility. Part of that is evaluating. Where are we as a family? Are, are we walking in the way of the Lord? Or he needs to examine that, just like the captain of a ship. He, he needs to evaluate. He needs to examine. He needs to manage this. That's actually what the, the manager of a home is. When, and when we describe the qualifications of an elder, he's a manager of his home. He's a keeper of his home. The father has the role of training and correcting and, and discipling and discipleship and discipline. Um, and he does that in partnership and tandem with his wife. Remember in Ephesians 5, uh, 21, we're, we're, we're 
in subjection to one another in the fear of Christ. We're doing this as a team together. And we'll talk a little bit more about the training and the correction. But the third element we want to look at here that we see in this passage is fathers. Now that we've got an understanding of what a, a father looks like from, from God's viewpoint, just from a general leadership viewpoint. But fathers, now we get into kind of like, here's some biblical insight. Do not provoke your children to anger. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Now that, that's very interesting that right off of children, obey your parents in the Lord. Like the first thing we hear, like the response is, Dad, don't provoke them. Children, obey your parents. Dad, don't provoke them. We have a responsibility to help them be obedient by not provoking them. Well, what exactly does that mean? Uh, in Colossians 3.21, the parallel passage to this, it uses the word exasperate. Right? Don't, don't exasperate your children. It has the idea of you know, stoking the fire. Right? Many of us have you know, wood-burning you know, stoves or ovens, and, you know, and you, here's the fire, and it's, it's like getting black and smoky. And you, you know, what do you do if you want to you know, get it going again? You get your little poker, and you poke it, and you stick it, and you turn it, and you stir it, and it doesn't take long at all. And all of a sudden, all those black, coals are all red now, right? And they're hot and you could feel the heat and that you put a piece of wood in there, it, it, it ignites just like it's a, like a blowtorch. And you can do that just by poking it. Well, that's the idea of exasperation. Don't stoke the fire. You can see your child is in angst. You can see that your child is uh, not behaving first time and quickly, that they're back sassing, that they have the face, right? The look, um, the countenance, and you, you, you know that there's already an issue, but you don't need to stoke that fire. You need to diffuse the situation, be the peacemaker in kindness and gentleness, the part of the fruit of the spirit that Galatians talks about. Exasperation also has the idea of, of, of rousing or pushing the buttons, right? Um, we know the closer we are to family, to friends, uh, especially our children, we, we know what buttons to push. You know, it's like a, like a whole, you know, there's like a whole board, you know, and it's like, um, boop, <laughs> you, you know, that will get them angry. That will get them sad. That'll get, you know, it's like, we know these buttons. This is part of why love, real love is not keeping account of wrong suffered not having your board of buttons that you know and you go to that just to, right? You're, you're not supposed to do that as the father. And yet many, many times that's what fathers do. They push buttons. They stoke fires. There's different ways that this can be done. There's not just one way. Uh, there's many ways, actually. Uh, one of the ways we... Stoke the fire's favoritism. You know, you have three kids and one seems to, you know, always get the benefit, whether it's real or not perceived perception is reality, but favoritism will, will provoke your children to anger. They feel as though they're not being treated fairly. 
Well, you have to explain that to them. You know that you're eight years younger than them, right? So you can't drive yet. You're only 10. They, they don't get that. You have to explain it to them. Um, accusations. You know, you come in and you blame them for things that they didn't do. And, you know, you're a parent and many times you're, you're pretty right because you were a kid too and you can hear things better than they think. Um, and so you're right a lot, but you're not always right. And so you're accusing them of things they didn't do. That'll provoke them to anger just because this one time you were wrong, um, but you are wrong this time. That'll make them upset. That'll push their buttons or indifference. This is one of the things that people think, you know, nowadays, well, we'll just let it go. Kids want instruction. They, they crave it. They, they desire it. They, they want to be told no. They, they want direction. To just let them go is, is, is not a loving way to parent. It provokes them to anger. It provokes them to going out and letting the street raise them. Harshness, being too harsh, being harshed in, in, in your, your words, just constantly you know, putting your, your child down, down verbally or being harsh physically, being abusive. These are things that will provoke your child. Spoiling them, giving them too much is, is not a good thing. What do they want for breakfast? Sugar. Lunch? Sugar. Dinner? Sugar. Snack time? Sugar. Right? Well, sugars might be what they want, but that's not good for them. Um, spoiling will provoke them to anger because you spoil them, and then when they don't get sugar, then the crazy train runs through town, right? Um, look, fathers also need to have fun fathers need to have some hobbies with their kids good families you'll see that the miraculously the sons like to do the same things that the fathers do that's just an accident no that's discipleship that, that that's including your your son in your life uh, you see families and there's trouble and it's like, well, dad goes off and he has all these special hobbies that he does all by himself. And juniors over here, just kind of a lost soul. When we see that the husband brings the son into that, and it could be anything from, you know, woodworking to horseback riding to sports, doesn't matter. The hobby doesn't matter. But when they do that together, it's beautiful. And when they don't, then again, that provokes the child. Provokes children when you don't guard and protect them. We're, we're supposed to be men. We, we've, we've lost sense of that. that. That's a put down now. We'll talk a little bit about that. But it, it, it's a put down to say, well, you know, that's you, you need to, to be more gentle, kind and loving and find your feminine side. Yeah, I can be kind and gentle, loving. But, but I also need to to teach my son how to be a man. And so, you know, like I mentioned before, when Junior comes in and scrapes his knee and it's bleeding and bloody and, you know, mom gives him the hug and the band-aid and the kiss and dad says, great, tape it up and go back out and finish the job. Balance. Balance is a good thing. That's a good thing. Um, 
but we also protect our child from real danger, real havoc, not just in, in life's things, but spiritually, right? We don't let our kids run and play out in the street because physically they'll be injured and damaged. We also protect them spiritually. That's why they don't get to play with that family or those kids or go to this event or stay out this late or do this activity, right? It's because we're wiser, we're smarter than them. That's part of our role. And when we don't do that, then we're provoking them into doing things their own way. And they're going to want to do that. That's their sin nature, fighting with you. You don't need to help that. You don't need to stoke the fire. The fire's there, right? The, the little sin fire, the coals, they're there. Maybe they're black right now, but it doesn't take much. Just a little poke, and whoosh, right? It's, it's, it's ready to go. As we saw before in verse 29 in chapter 5, that, that not only with our wives are we to nourish and cherish, we're, we're to nourish and cherish our, our, our children, what does that mean? That, that, that's a, a spiritual call, right? We, we, just like the song says, we pray with them, for them. Um, that's a way to nourish them, to train them up in, in the way of the Lord, to uh, disciple them, and to discipline them. Discipline is love. Discipline is love. And, and, and we'll see how that looks. But number four, fatherhood's under attack. And why is fatherhood under attack? Because it's biblical. The evil one hates everything that, that is good that, that, that the Bible wants to promote. The Bible wants to promote family. The evil one wants to destroy it. Uh, the, the Bible describes Roles, the, the evil one wants to make roles evil, right? Um, all the way to the point of Adam and Eve where, you know what? God is giving you rules because he doesn't want you to be like him. I mean, that, that's the extent that, 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 that Satan will go to, to lie and deceive people and, and, and creating angst and division. Well, a child is a, is a child is immature, is still young, is still growing, and they just don't really understand everything. And so mentally they, they don't get it. Well, we live in a culture now in a society that is literally attacking fatherhood. Why? Well, part of it is the what ifs. Well, yeah, 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 but, but you don't understand that, that you know, this happened. No, we understand that. I, I understand that, that she's a widow because her husband went off to war and, you know, I, I get that. that. That's still the exception to the rule, not the rule. We got to get focused back on, well, what's the rule? What's the standard? Um, our, our culture then wants to find and seek out all the one-offs, all the bad fathers, all the uncaring fathers. Or on, they want to show a, a picture, a caricature on, on TV shows, sitcoms are, 
are famous for this. Movies are famous for that, for this. Either, either the father only cares about his career and his money and his job. And, you know, you barely even see him in the TV show or the movie because all he cares about is money. So he's off to work, right? He, he's that guy who wears a $4,000 suit and goes off to work. Uh, so he's just callous and uncaring and doesn't care about his family. Or, which is their favorite one in a sitcom, he's just an absolute babbling buffoon. He's just a buffoon. Of course, they live in these amazing houses, right? Where you look at it, it's like, the guy would have to be very, very above and beyond financially successful. But he's a fool. You know, he owns a business or whatever, but he's, you know, can barely tie his shoes. Um Again, this is our fatherhood being under attack because, well, we don't really need that guy anyway. Really, we don't. Actually, the kids can, can you know, rule, rule the world. I mean, what happened to, you know, shows like, you know, I mean, th think of this title, Father Knows Best. You guys remember that? You're going to age yourself if you remember that. It was in black and white too. Hey, I remember it. I'm not ashamed. I love that show. Father knows best. Fa think about that. Think about the, the message every week. Father knows best. Father knows best. every week. There's a problem solution. One of the kids runs to father. Why? Father knows best. There's wisdom. There's discernment. There's, there's fatherhood. He helps them when they laugh, when they cry. Father's the anchor of the house. What a beautiful show. Uh, another one of my favorite shows growing up was Leave it to Beaver. Loved Leave it to Beaver. Um, does great show. In fact, you know, the, 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 the model, you know, woman for me was, you know, June Cleaver. You know, she cooked, she cleaned, she was sweet and nice. And, you know, that, that was, she, was, she was amazing. And so I married her. Um, <laughs> true story. That's uh, it's very, very true. But these were, you know, families that were intact and together and the brothers and the sisters, you know, yeah, they had some squabbles, but, you know, they loved each other. Um, nowadays, the best shows, you know, things like, you know, everybody loves Raymond. You know, again, he's the bumbling fool. Every man, every father in the show is a, is a fool. Um, you know, there's a, a I think it was a Disney show. Good luck, Charlie. You know, the, the dad's a, you know, babbling fool again. Uh, the Hannah Montana kind of shows, the parents aren't even around, you know, they're, it's like these kids just raised themselves. All that again is to undermine fatherhood. You don't really need a, a father. Um, even shows like, you know, S Seventh Heaven, which was like supposed to be a, a pastor in the family. It's just an absolute nightmare. No part of the show do they ever deal with things biblically. Uh, that was one of the things with, you know, one of my favorite shows, uh, The Brady Bunch. It's like, hey, The Brady Bunch was nice and sweet and, you know, hijinks and laughs and all that. But at no point did they ever resolve conflict or resolve problems by going to the Bible. At no point was the Bible their biblical base for living. Well, all of these things really attack Christian families and Christian fatherhood. And so we're left to assume and believe, well, I mean, what, what's, what's in a father anyway? I mean, if, if the father's around, he's either a fool or he only cares about business. So fathers are totally out of touch. Um, it's the idea of, well, they don't understand. 
Fathers don't understand. Fathers were never 15-year-old teenage boy themselves. We, we understand. We understand a lot better than, than you do. We've been there. We've already been there. We've been there a couple times. Maybe we've even had other kids. Um, we've read the book. We've seen the movie. Uh, we understand. We're, we're not out of touch. One of the things that we see is fatherhood being under attack just from, from the, the culture that we have. We have a very, uh, you know, the, the feminism, the feminist culture, again, really screams, well, you don't need dads. It, it's, it's offensive if you say that you need a husband and a wife, a, father, a mother and a father in, in a family. Right away, they run off to the 25 different examples of the what ifs. Because that's just not true. Um, well, let's check our stats again and see how it's working out in, in, in fatherless homes. The, the, the stats don't lie. We do need fathers. Biblical fatherhood matters. Not just fathers, but biblical fatherhood. What does that mean? Well, the fifth example we see here is fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Instead, Instead of stoking their fire, doing the things that are going to lead them, provoke them to anger. Instead, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, so first of all, again, our indicator is of the Lord, right? So this is biblical instruction. This isn't like family tradition or, you know, you know, the Brady Bunch or leave it to Beaver. Those are not our standards. Our standard is the instruction, the discipline of the Lord, a biblical standard. Well, what, what does this mean? Uh, bring them up. Bring them up is the idea of, of nourishing to maturity. Nourishing to maturity. You know, I think of like the, you know, maybe a, a baby calf, you know, where you actually have to like hold it in your arms with the little bottle, you know. Have you ever seen, you know, like a baby calf that's struggling? It's like you've got to feed and nourish that calf to help it survive or it will die. That's the idea of nourishing. And we're to nourish our children to maturity. How old is maturity? Yeah, it doesn't say. Um, again, fathers are helping their children mature nonstop, constant. And that's a good thing. Every stage is different. A child reaches 15 for the first time, 20 for the first time, 20 and they get married and 25 they have kids and 30 they have three kids and a job and a career and a business and every five years it just gets more and more and more, right? Well, the child still has a parent and a father to help them, to nourish them to that maturity. How? Well, it begins with discipline. Discipline. In the Greek, it's, it's that term uh, uh, pedagogy. Pedagogy, which is funny because in, in the education world, uh, you know, you have your resume, right? If you're in business or, you know, a job and a work and they want to see your resume. And in education, what's your pedagogy? It's like, what? What are, what are we taught? What's going on here? So well, we want to we know and understand uh, the method by which is your instruction for training. Your, your educational method for instruction and, and training is what that's meant to be 
in the academic world. And in the academic world, it only means one thing. Where'd you go to university? Which school? Which public secular university trained you? That's it. Like, like that's the only way you can learn how to teach. Well, teaching is in forms of teaching or in all kinds of things. Uh, and the true mark of a, of a great teacher isn't the college or university they went to, uh, isn't a matter of how good they are. We see this in you know, sports all the time. A person was a Hall of Fame player and they think they can be a coach and they're terrible coaches. Or the best coaches were terrible players or didn't even play at all. And so the idea here in the Greek is, is that instruct by training really has more of a military and a sports idea in the context of child rearing process. By definition, it's process. So don't be shocked at, at five, your, your children aren't there. And they're not going to be there at 10 or 15 or 20 or 25. They're always on a process of maturing. They get there in, in a lot of different elements, but they're not there there, right? They're still in process and so are we. And so the idea there in the bringing them up to maturity has that idea of think the military. We're gonna, I, I love how the military starts you at what? Basic training. Let, let, let's not pretend here. You need to start with the basics. We're going to teach you how to tie your shoelaces, put your socks on, because if you don't do that right, we're getting ready to run. You're going to get blisters and we're not stopping or waiting. Um, we're going to start at the beginning. So discipline includes instruction, training. Um, and if you don't do it, fathers, somebody else will. And, and if you give that roll up to somebody five days a week, eight hours a day, nine months a year for 13 years straight. Don't be shocked when they come home and they don't believe and follow the things that you believe in. Don't be shocked. You, you, you didn't discipline and train them. You turn that over to somebody else. Deuteronomy 6, 5 says we're, we're to bind God's love on their heart. When you sit down, lie down, walking around while you're working, you're supposed to do that. Now, it was a lot easier when, you know, people were shepherds and farmers and, you know, kids can be literally on their hip. But that's still the, 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 the high bar goal is that is your job. Figure out a way to do that, to train them, to, to bind God's love on their heart. Psalm 1 talks about that. Um, that they're to meditate on God's law day and night all day all day they're to to meditate on on god's law as fathers we're to lead them in that way colossians 128 we usually use that as a a church first but really i mean it has to do with the father too and they raising their kids in the admonition and teaching them wisdom it's it's our job to teach them wisdom it includes Discipline includes the chastisement and correction piece. We, we live in a world today that, you know, it's, it's, it's all unicorns and lollipops. There, there, there's, there's no 
There, there's no discipline. There's no instruction. If, if they're doing something that, that uh, is non-biblical, then you need to cater to them. And I'll talk about that in a second. But look, the Bible is very, very clear. There are rules. There's law. There's God's instruction. And when you break that law, then there's going to be consequences. Hebrews 12 talks about God disciplines those he loves. God disciplines those he loves. If, if God doesn't discipline you, he doesn't love you. If your father doesn't discipline you, he doesn't love you. That's the standard that God sets as fathers. That's what fatherhood is. Correction. Correction in the training. There needs to be correction to help them to reach their full potential, to help them reach maturity. Proverbs 13, 24, famous verse, don't spare the rod to spoil the child. Punishment is training. We're not talking about beating or assault or abuse. A little flick like this. You, just a little flick like that. And you'll see a, 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 a two-year-old, just the big lip comes up. They know I did something wrong. I shouldn't have done that. They start learning right away. Just a, a, a little something. Um, being at a Christian school with a thousand kids running around that, that the rod, you could tell where the rod was withheld. Um, it doesn't work. Look at our world. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen: foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive him far from it. It's, it's, it's for love, not, not out of hate. We, we have to drive out the foolishness. We, we, our starting point, our starting point is bad, not good. We're, we're desperately sick and wicked. Jeremiah 17, 9. There's none righteous. No, not one. Romans tells us that in Romans, Romans 3. We're, we're conceived in sin and iniquity. It, it's it's the way we are as failed humans is to to sin. We have to train and drive that foolishness out of them. That's what good fathers do. We teach them the right things. We put it on their heart, and then we also correct them when they don't do the right things. Proverbs twenty nine fifteen: The rod and a rebuke are given in wisdom, but a child who gets his own way will bring shame to his mother. Getting your own way. You are not God. You are not autonomous, especially at eight years old. And most definitely at 15. That's when it really gets dangerous, right? So a father's key role in training and discipling is right thinking. That, that's the whole concept behind the great Shema in Deuteronomy 6 is, is you have to train from sun up to sun down all day long, meditating day and night to get that child to think right. So a man thinketh, he will liveth, right? So we've got to get them to have the right kind of thinking to where it happens quickly, to where you hear that spirit that says, don't do that, that breaks God's law. Confess, repent, make peace, be kind, be gentle, right? Because that's what God wants in a loving relationship. So at both times, you've got God and the Spirit telling you the things not to do and the things to do and how to live. And, and we're to be following that. But we need to 
put that in our children's hearts and minds so that it will come out in the right time, the time of testing. Right now we have a whole movement within, I mean, I don't, I don't even know how we call it Christianity. It's called progressive Christianity. Now they don't come out and this is the bad part. And this is why I scream from the pulpit all the time. Beware of deceptive teaching. Beware of the false prophet. Be, beware. Why? Well, because almost every uh, book that we have in the New Testament cries that out to beware of false teaching. Where are we going to find false teaching? Right here at pulpits from pastors. Where are we going to find false teaching? From Christian books. Where are we going to find false teaching? From Christian movies, from Christian speakers, authors, conferences. That's not to say all those things are evil. What it's to say is be wise and discerning. That's where the, the lie and the false teaching and the Antichrist is going to come from. Not the other side. He, he's going to come from within. So you, you have to be ready. You have to be prepared. And that's what a father's supposed to do to, to train his child to, to discipline, disciple him into correction and instruction and training for right thinking. Right now we have these progressive churches. Well, you know, first of all, the Bible isn't really the authority. That's where it starts. So, so read my book instead. Um, now we're going to redefine terms in the Bible because we don't like these terms in the Bible. You know, Ephesians 5 says, you know, verse 3, don't let immorality, impurity, or greed even be named among you as saints. Or filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, you know, well, I don't know. I mean, can't we be a little immoral? Let's redefine what is morality. I mean, that may have been, you know, back in the Stone Age. But now, I mean, we have, you know, we have different rules. We have different rules of what pure is. No, we don't. We, we have the same rules. Um, we don't redefine and reevaluate doctrine and biblical teaching. That's all they do all the time. They reevaluate it, redefine it, and then write a book and then package it as like some new form of Christianity. It, it, it's not. The Bible's really clear. Um, we have these, you know, tropes now. If, if there's something that's clearly stated in the Bible, clear as a bell, but you know what? A lot of people are doing it. So if we don't embrace them, then we're unloving, hurtful, bigots, intolerant, discriminating, judgy, mean, right? You ever hear that? Well, where does that come from? I mean, that's coming from progressive Christianity. So, in other words, I, when I read my scripture, that very clearly tells me, well, here's, you know, I can go back to, to Romans 12. And it's like, live without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, clean to what is good, be devoted to one another, give preference to one another, love, don't lie behind and do it. I can take any one of these things and just say, no, I don't want to do it. And if you don't let me not do this, then you're mean and hateful and beg it. And, and it can be anything. And it's funny how, and we're going to get into this in, in a couple weeks. It's funny how there's only a couple issues 
that this is an issue with. I don't see the group of protesters running around. Why are you so mean to the murderers? Why are you a bigot to the murderers? Why, why do you say anything about murder? Why are you so judgy? Um, God has standards. Um, progressive Christianity eliminates standards. There's no law. There's always the exception to the rule. So we got to unchurch. The problem with the church is the church. So we have to redefine, change terms. And what we really need, the church needs to be more like the world. That's what we need. We need to package the church and now in like marketing techniques. And look, the church by definition is a body of believers. That's the church. It's, it's not this. It's, it's people who believe in Jesus Christ. That's the church. Non-believers are welcome to come in and, and welcome to listen. Absolutely. We, we want to evangelize. But we don't make church like what they want. The reason why they don't want to come in is they have a certain expectation that, well, you're going to make me read the Bible. You're, you're going to make me sing hymns. You're going to tell me I can't sleep around. You're going to tell me I have to be an ethical business owner. I don't want to hear that, so I don't want to go. Meanwhile, you have ch churches going, well, maybe we shouldn't be so mean to them. I mean, you know, it's hard to make money in business. So if you got to cheat, cheat a little bit. I mean, are, are, what are we talking about here? And again, there's only a few subjects that that really applies to. And finally here, we see the admonition. So a father is to not provoke the child, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord so that they are able to understand false teaching, biblical training, biblical teaching with false teaching. Remember, that's a little bit of an issue near the end times, right? You might want to buckle up for that. Uh, false teaching is... is it's kind of a biggie. Um, well, the admonition here then, uh, some of your, your Bibles just say the, the instruction, but it, it comes from the word uh, nuthesia, which is nuthetic. And maybe some of you have heard of uh, biblical or nuthetic counseling. It's the idea of, it's a warning. It's, it's a warning in counseling, a biblical spiritual warming. Again, it's a warning into that proper thing thought. You, you got to think right to do right. If you think wrong, you'll do wrong. And so that's why we come here. We come here to, to read God's word, to remind us, okay, what is the biblical pattern for marriage? Not what the world's teaching, not what Hallmark, I just saw a cute Hallmark movie. That's not the pattern for love or marriage or anything. What does the Bible say? And the Bible is countercultural because the culture is counterbiblical. It's not complicated. The culture kicks the Bible out of philosophy, kicks the Bible out of psychology, kicks the Bible out of science. Why? Because it completely rejects the Bible. Why are we sitting there on the other side going, please, science, come our way. Please, psychology, please, philosophy. That's bad thinking. The process of our thinking that a father needs to do with their child so that they grow up and aren't enraged and angry and felt like they were lied to. Instead, they were properly biblically trained. They're ready and prepared for the world. So we read, 
We read God's word. We receive it as God's word so that we remain at all times in God's word. We, we can distinguish between counterfeit teaching and, and real teaching. You, your first indication should be when the terms are changing, when the terms change, that should be a red flag, not a good thing. If it's new, it's probably not true. If it's new, it's probably repackaged and re-gifted in a way to be deceptive, to be charming. And so we need to have a proper thought process by immersing ourselves in God's word. Po proper biblical training gives us wisdom, gives us discernment, gives us that 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 wise mind that Ephesians 5 talks about so that we can be careful how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise, not as the foolish. And so a father properly protects his children. The lions, the lion, the evil one who's prowling around like a lion waiting to seek and destroy you, is real. The wolves that are in sheep's clothing, the deceptive, those are real. The evil one, and we'll get to it in the next couple weeks, the evil one who's there with the flaming arrows of missiles launching at you as an assault, a spiritual assault, is real. So fathers, fathers need to Bring their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord so that the lions, the wolves, and the missiles don't penetrate. So this captain, the father of the family, the captain of the ship, the, the ultimate servant leader, the ultimate servant leader is sacrificial and thoughtful. It's hard to be a, a father. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of hats. That, that's, the, that, that's the duty. That's the role. Um, you don't get to just decide, you know, um, I'm the captain of this big ship and there's a lot of people here and we're just going to turn it into a carnival cruise. <laughs> we got all the stuff, all the makings. No, you, you have a role. You have a military role that, that you have to uphold. We as fathers have a spiritual role that we have to uphold in all things, all things. Living by the fruit of the Spirit, living by the definition of what love is, all, all of that applies, all of it. And if fathers don't follow the biblical instructions then by definition, this will provoke your child to anger. If you're not sure, go, go to a, a public university, listen to kids at, at American public universities. Now think about this. These are the most <laughs> privileged kids in the world. By definition, they're at a public university. They, they get to go to college and they're miserable. They're all angry. They're, it, it's, they're miserable and angry and have to escape 
right? And, and, and you know, do performance, or not performance, but, you know, enhancing, you know, drugs and things. Why? Because they're not happy. What's there not to be happy about? Should be on top of the world, but, but their parents, their fathers have not raised them in the admonition of the Lord, have not discipled them, have not properly loved them. And so now what you're seeing is here's a child who's now put on a campus and told, now you're an adult and they're angry because within themselves, they have no preparation for adulthood at all. None whatsoever. They're lost and they're searching and they're seeking and they're crying out. But all that really is a response because of a lack of a father actually fathering. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for, again, your...